Let's turn now to God's Word. If you want to look this up in the book in front of you, there's a blue Bible. It's on page 853, Mark chapter 15. Begin reading with verse 40. This is our last uh, study in the book of Mark. Next week we begin the letter of 2 Peter. <clears throat> we, I had to miss it because I was away, but uh, I know that Mark was treated Friday night by seven of our uh, men uh, teaching the various aspects of Christ's suffering. And now we consider his resurrection. Now, as we read this, you'll notice that the women, it goes women, verse 40, 41, then Joseph, and then back to the women. So there's a kind of sandwich that Mark likes to create. Uh, and this leads into the story of the actual resurrection. It's very carefully written and prepared. <clears throat> so beginning with verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, that is, at the crucifixion, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joses and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there was also, were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is raised. Literally. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That's the reading of God's word. You'll notice that we don't treat verses 9 through 20. And I have written a one-page paper in the back, if you want to pick it up, to, that explains a bit of why that is. And then on the back of that sheet is a little treatment of the fact that women were the early witnesses. Uh, women were not thought to be 
faithful witnesses. And if you're going to make up a story, you wouldn't have made it up with women. So this is one of the indications that this is a true account. Um, And, of course, we don't agree with that uh, estimation that the Jewish culture had at that time. Uh, But that's back on the back if you would like to consider either one of those. Let us pray. Father, we praise you for giving your son to such a sacrifice, bearing the sin of the world, suffering in unimaginable ways that he might deliver us from sin and its judgment and death. Oh, Lord, praise you that you loved us, that you had compassion upon us, that you so loved the world that you gave your only son, that we might believe in him and have forgiveness of sin, that we might enter into a relationship with the living God through Christ, that we might be renewed even now, begin to be changed and become more like God himself and one day, Lord, to be raised ourselves after the pattern of Christ's resurrection and enter the new heavens and the new earth that he will create. Oh, Lord, thank you for such a salvation, for such a people that had turned its back upon you. We honor you and pray that you would renew us in our love and devotion and obedience and trust in Jesus Christ. Amen. Our society really struggles with, with death. What do you do with, with death? Uh, comedians underscore our uneasiness with death. Like Woody Allen said, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality through not dying. Right? George Carlin, I'm always relieved when someone is delivering the eulogy and I realize I'm listening to it. (laughs) William Sarian says, everybody has got to die, but I've always believed an exception would be made in my case. All right? And of course, Seinfeld gets in on it. According to most studies, people's number one fear is public speaking. Number two is death. Death is number two? Does that sound right? This means to the average person, if you go to a funeral, you're better off in the casket than doing the eulogy. (laughs) Nobody thinks that, right? Nobody thinks, I wish I was in the casket, not delivering a eulogy. Yeah, this underscores, right, the uneasiness that we have with death. In his Pulitzer Prize winning book entitled The Denial of Death, Ernest Becker Writes And he's not a believer, but this whole book is dedicated to mankind's denial of death. He writes this, The idea of death, the fear of it, haunts the human animal like nothing else. It is a mainspring of human activity. Activity designed largely to avoid the fatality of death. To overcome it by denying in some way that it is the final destiny for man. William James called death the worm at the core of man's pretensions to happiness. 
And so you have people that are realists and they face death straight on and say some pretty ugly things. And then you have others that you might say are more escapists, right? Not to face the reality of physical death. So one realist, Jean Cocteau, says, Since the day of my birth, my death began its walk. It is walking toward me without hurrying. The steady onslaught of death. John Maynard, John Maynard Keynes simply says, In the long run, we are all dead. An Italian proverb, I like this. Once the game is over, the king and the pawn go back into the same box. Maurice Maeterlinck says, All our knowledge merely helps us to die a more painful death than animals who know nothing. And Ernest Hemingway writes, There is no lonelier man in death than the man who has lived many years with a good wife, then outlived her. When two people love each other, there can be no happy end to it. Still, we have a very popular folk religion, I would call it, that floats around all over the place. And by this folk religion, our loved ones, they, they kind of watch over us. They see what's going on in our life. And many times, we'll even say, I think my mother did that. I think my brother must have brought that about. They somehow get caught up in the very providence and rule of the world. These people who are dead. They're dead. But we imagine the somehow life that goes on. And... Interestingly, uh, people like Kublarashi represents many, many who would say such things as this. Trying to, to make the point that it doesn't matter that your body dies. It just doesn't matter. That's not important. Okay? So she says, death is neither frightening nor painful, but a peaceful cessation of the functioning of the body. Death is not painful. It is the most beautiful experience you will ever have. When we have passed the tests, we are sent to earth to learn. We are allowed to graduate. We are allowed to shed our body, which imprisons our souls like a butterfly sheds its cocoon, like taking off a suit of clothes one no longer needs, a transition to a higher state of consciousness. And so death is redefined, not as an ugly, horrible invasion into mankind's life, but a beautiful experience onto a higher life. This constitutes a major break we have with all Eastern thought. We care about the body as Christians. We care about the body. So Becker himself, again, an unbeliever, says, pretending not to be reborn, see, not to want to have a body again, which is a sort of negative magic, claiming not to want what you really want. 
It's our negative magic that it doesn't matter that the body's in the grave rotting. That doesn't matter. From the first time I met my father-in-law, Pruitt Calvert, I was rather dumbfounded by his open expression of affection and love to his family. And as I eventually became a part of that family, to me as well, I was not accustomed to receiving letters for a man who cared so deeply for me. I was not accustomed to a man who could hardly pray for his family and hardly thank God for his good things without weeping. I was not accustomed to the open and unabashed encouragement and support and praise that he gave me for 38 years. This is all the more amazing in that when he was four years old, he saw his own mother killed right in front of him as she tried to stop a runaway wagon. Then he had to leave his father and his older two brothers and move into town to live with his older sister and her husband. And it was a devastating experience and a very difficult circumstance that he was brought to. Still, he loved his daughter so well that we joke, and I've mentioned this before, we go into a room and I'll say, look, I go into a room and I just think nobody likes me. You know, that's just what I assume. I said, what do you think when you go into a room? She says, I think everybody ought to like me. (laughs) So confident. And I think it's because she had such a love from her father and her mother. No one can tell me that it is good that his drained, broken, lifeless body was lying there at 1 a.m. last Friday morning. Nobody can tell me that is good. That there'll be no more hugs, that there'll be no exchanges of love, that be no more kind words on this earth. Don't tell me that's good. No one who's seen a loved one die of cancer, MS, ALS, Alzheimer's, lung disease, heart disease, Ebola, whatever, can call these things good in themselves. You hate them as they're happening to your loved one. No one can go to a nursing home and see the condition of those people and say, it's good. I always, when I see those people, want to see what they were like, you know. I wonder what she was like as a teenager, what was he like as a 35-year-old. The Bible teaches that God originally told Adam that if he abandoned his relationship with God, he would surely die. He did, and he did. Death, according to God's word, is a result of turning our back on God. Paul writes, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. This is Romans 5. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And as Brian quoted, the wages of sin is death. Universal death 
is the mark of universal sin. Death is not a natural good. It is not a natural part of this world. It is an invasion and the end, and in the end, God will remove it from this earth completely. He has already begun in the resurrection of Christ. And so we're going to talk about the way death has been healed, the way death has been conquered, what it will mean for the world, how we can be a part of it. We're going to look first at the happy irony of the resurrection as Mark sets it forth here. Then we're going to look at the precious forgiveness of the resurrection. And then finally, the full renewal of the resurrection. The happy irony of the resurrection is put before us in this passage. They obviously, these these women, did not take seriously Jesus' own words that he would die and he would rise from the dead. They were not expecting this. That did not register at all in their heads. Their anxiety over how they will roll the stone away from the opening is An ironic note. They must have recounted it that way later. Yet there we were, wondering how we're going to roll the stone away. Can you believe it? Then we get there. So they go in this angel. The angel, an angel announced, you know, to Mary and to Joseph and to the shepherds, uh, the birth of Jesus. And so here an angel announces the resurrection of Jesus. He, he, it says he's sitting on the right side. That's not something you'd make up. It's probably an eyewitness account. He's sitting on the right side. He was in white robes, probably luminescent in the dark uh, tomb. And he's sitting, this mark of authority as he pronounces the resurrection. This marks him as a heavenly emissary from the presence of God. And it brought wonder and astonishment, even distress into their hearts. Because it just broke the, the bonds of their understanding. It went beyond what they could comprehend. And the way he describes it shows that this is not a Jesus made up. Uh, that is, he, he's, he died, but then we've made up this idea that Jesus lives somewhere in spirit. He says specifically, this Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified, he has risen. Same guy. He lived, you knew him, he died, you saw it, you saw where the grave is. Now look, he's gone, he's up. He is now a living, he he announces a living, traveling Jesus. (laughs) He is... His resurrection leads to this continuing life and activity right here on earth in his new body. Their attempt to anoint him underscores this earlier anointing that Jesus received from a woman while he was reclining in Simon the leper's house back in Bethany. She broke the flask, poured the very costly ointment over his head, and Jesus said, she has anointed my body for burial. These ladies are too late, right? They come to do for Jesus' body what that woman had already done. It's impossible for them. He's no longer dead. The irony of bringing all these things to anoint this person who is no longer dead. 
For the first time in history, there is no need for a funeral service. There is no need for a pause to remember the one who is past. There is no need to reflect on this person's life who has left us. For the first time, one is alive from the dead, alive to a whole new order of life. And this new life holds the same promise to anyone who will trust in him. These ladies were taken up with death when they came to the tomb. Jesus had burst forth with life. And so are we living in death? Are we living in life? What defines our existence? Does the resurrection define your existence, your energy, your expectation, your focus, your hope in the midst of suffering, loss, and death? Is the resurrection, does it captivate you? Is that by which you live? So this wonderful irony of the resurrection, that death has been reversed. You recall what Aslan said in the line, the witch in the wardrobe. He had been killed on the stone table. And the girls the next day find that the stone table is broken and he is gone. And suddenly he appears. Aslan is the picture of Christ, as you probably know. And he says this. They wondered, how did this happen? He says, when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. The irony of the resurrection. Death is unfolding backwards into life through Jesus Christ. And so... The irony of the resurrection. And then there is the precious forgiveness of the resurrection. You see it in not so many words, but it's very obvious when he says in verse 7, Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. These are the disciples that right now are immersed in guilt and self damnation, rightly so, because they abandoned Jesus. Peter blasphemously denied him using the four-letter words that were available to him, that he didn't know Jesus. And he is singled out. (laughs) Tell the disciples and Peter that I'm going to Galilee. This, in effect, is saying... You're in my favor yet. I, forgiveness is for you. Welcome and fellowship is for you who had abandoned me and who denied me. And so the last word isn't ours, isn't Peter's own word to himself or the disciples. It is Jesus' word. Come, I go before you. Your own assessment of your life is not the last word. Your self-condemnation and despair is not the last word. Your self-judgment is not the last word. Jesus' word of forgiveness and life and promise and expectation is the last word. This is the resurrection. 
This is a new and powerful life that has been brought forth through Christ. This is a new relationship of intimacy with God. His word is to be believed, not your own. And this word to Peter, you know, you might hang back as I might hang back thinking about your own blasphemy, thinking about your own hateful, murderous thoughts, your own hateful and hurtful words and actions. You might hang back because you know you, as I know, do not deserve the honor and blessing and praise at the judgment of God. You have some idea, as I do, of what a judgment would look like if I stood fully exposed in the naked evil that pit marks my life. But the angel says, in effect, Darwin, he is going before you. He wants you to join with him, to be a part of his kingdom. He invites you to forgiveness and favor in him. I love the words of Hark the Herald Angels sing, Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. And so the angel addresses you. Christ addresses you. As he did Martha in John 11. I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I I used to be puzzled by Paul's words in Romans 10, 9. He says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And what puzzled me about that is it doesn't mention anything about his death or forgiveness. Just if you believe in his Lord and you believe God raised him from the dead. And one could even look at that and say, okay, well, I believe God raised him from the dead. Okay, I believe that. I believe God could do that. I believe in that miracle. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He's, he's, He's inviting us and calling us. To believe in what the resurrection says about the death of Christ. As as Brian has already mentioned. That the resurrection tells us that Jesus fully paid for sin. He was raised because he fully took sin away for all who believe in him. This is what the resurrection declares. To believe that God raised him from the dead is to believe that God accepts Jesus' work on the cross as having fully paid for sin. That's why Jesus was released. And I can be released too through this same Jesus. So to believe in the death of And resurrection of Christ. To believe in the resurrection of Christ is to believe that the penalty is paid. Death is over for Jesus. Death is destroyed in the death of Christ. Guilt is destroyed in Christ. I can be free in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that there is full forgiveness in Christ? Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? It declares to you, Full and free forgiveness. Complete favor and welcome in God. Jesus, you see, is Lord over death. 
He is Lord to forgive no matter my sin. He is Lord over sin, and he's Lord over its consequences. Sin and its guilt will not rule us any longer. He is Lord, not sin. He is Lord, not the guilt of sin. He owns you as Lord, not sin, not Satan, not death. He owns your body, not sin, not Satan, not death. As Paul says, speaking of the body in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Jesus has the last word, and it's a word of forgiveness. It's a word of favor. It's a word of life. So there's the irony of the resurrection. There is the forgiveness of the resurrection, and there is the full renewal of the resurrection. This begins by thinking about the nature of Christ's resurrection itself. What was that resurrection? It differs completely from the resurrection of Lazarus, which Christ had brought about just a few days before this. Lazarus was raised from the dead, restored to his normal bodily health, but at the best he would live his life, live a long life, and finally die. That's completely different than what we're talking about here. We get some idea of what his body is like by hearing what we're going to be like because we're going to be made like him. For instance, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul tells us that Jesus Christ will come again. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. So there it is. What, this body is a glorious body, and ours is going to be conformed to it. So our present body is lowly or humble. Our resurrection body, which is like Jesus' body, is glorious. That speaks of magnificence. It speaks of majesty. It speaks of royalty. It speaks of strength. A body that in some way is going to be wonderful and extraordinary and truly awesome. We throw that word around. That is the body he was raised into. Now, it was his body. He's recognizable, but it went from lowliness to glory. And so the most amazing and beautiful bodies of human beings on earth are considered lowly compared to this resurrection body. We learn a little more as Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15, 42, talking about the change from this body to that body. He likens our present body to a seed that was sown and the resurrection body uh, to what is raised from that seed. So he describes it like this in four contrasts. What is sown, that is a present body, is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown, it is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown as a natural body. It is raised as a spiritual body. That means that your body now is animated by your own soul. It's a natural body. Then it will be animated in a whole new way by the Holy Spirit. He will govern and replenish fill out and magnify himself in our body. Truly in this 
ultimate way, we will become the true temple of God, showing forth his majesty in our bodies. And not only this was Christ brought to this new condition of life, of being imperishable, of never dying again, of having this new strength and majesty in his body. But this was the restoration of humankind out of death, and so it becomes the restoration of the whole creation, as Paul talks about it in Romans 8. So that the whole creation, when man went into the ravine, as the engine pulls the the train into the ravine, that pulled all of creation into the ravine. When man is finally glorified, as Paul describes it in Romans 8, when we are finally renewed as the children of God and made perfect in glory, then the whole creation will be renewed along with us. So this resurrection means ultimately the renewal of the whole earth. It means ultimately the new heavens and the new earth in Christ Jesus. As it says in Colossians 1, he reconciles all things to himself. Or as it speaks of in Acts 3, the restoration of all things. This is already begun in his ascension and reign at the right hand. It says he must reign until all his enemies are under his feet and until all his people are gathered to himself. So we can face the reality of death head on. We can admit with the realists, oh yes, it is that terrible and worse. But we believe That in Christ, the sting is removed and it has no more victory. We face death. We face it honestly. And God has dealt with it honestly. He has not ignored death. He has not played like our bodies do not matter. He became incarnate. He suffered on a cross to redeem your body as well as your soul. And this talk about our being, of of not even talking about the resurrection and somehow it's okay just to be dismembered from our bodies. And now everything's great. It's wonderful to go to be with Christ. Don't get me wrong. That's wonderful. And it's a tremendous relief and blessing for so many of God's people who are suffering. But... It is not the final thing that Scripture constantly looks to. Scripture looks to the resurrection of the body. Even calls it in Romans 8, our adoption. As, not that we aren't already adopted, but that's how important it is in God's economy. That's when your adoption finally has its fulfillment. Is when you receive your new body. We, we talk about the soul getting to be released from the body. The, the, the soul, if it could talk to us, would say, no, that was more like a disembowelment. <laughs> it was like a dismemberment. It's like an amputation. And I long to see the restoration of soul and body. That's our glory, that we're made soul and body. In his incarnation, he forever lives as the God-man. Is a statement not only about our bodies, but about creation itself. And so... What has happened in Christ's resurrection is all of history has been gathered up in that resurrection 
and pull to this final point, Jesus Christ. It says in Ephesians 1 that everything will be united in Christ. He is the goal now of all of history. He rules history. He's the goal of history. And he's also the judge of history. Paul, in speaking to the Athenians, ties in the resurrection with the final judgment. He announces to them that God is going to judge the world by a man. And he's, he's established it by raising him from the dead. And so Christ becomes the one before whose seat we all have to come to be judged. Every single one of you. You will have to do with Christ. You will have to do with this one. This announcement is the declaration of a whole new order of existence. The whole world turned on a pivot in that tomb, was powerfully redirected in a whole new path. Christ is the end of creation. Where are you in regard to him? Are you within that resurrection? Are you within the life of that resurrection? Within the forgiveness of that resurrection? Within the favor of God of that resurrection? Are you part of the renewal of that resurrection, of being changed even now more and more into the image of this good and gracious God? That's part of the power of the resurrection. And are you a part of what will be this coming transformation of the world and of us where we are made perfect in our love for one another perfect in our regard for one another a perfect society perfect interaction perfect collaboration as we live out forever our new life in the new heavens and new earth the resurrection says that the going to heaven is you get a round trip ticket right <laughs> come back to this earth and so beautifully paul in answering a question that the thessalonians had they say okay we know he's coming and when he comes our bodies will be changed what about that those who have died do they miss out it's a good question really like Oh, I, I get his change in me, but what about my, my, my brother, my sister that, that died? And he says a lovely thing. He says, when Jesus comes, he will bring those spirits who have died. See, that, that's not their final condition. He brings those spirits with him. And he says, they first will receive their new bodies. I think that's so appropriate, right? If you've died and lost your body... You should be first in line. We should step aside, right? <laughs> and then he says, we will be changed. Everybody gets the new body, whether you've died or not. And at that point, it will be fulfilled, as it says in 1 Corinthians, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Isn't that beautiful? This thing that we can't cope with, this thing that we want to make jokes about, this thing that we can't face, this thing that we want to imagine doesn't exist, it will be gone. He will destroy it. Are you living within this life?
Without the resurrection, there is no life after death. There is no happiness after the grave. There is no reunion with loved ones. There is no future of life. You understand that. Without the resurrection, you have nothing. My father-in-law and then his son had every day of the week, the weekday, uh, switch and swap, okay? So they read off something that somebody wants to sell or something somebody wants to buy and everything, switch and swap. Um, it's a part of their furniture store advertisement. I mean, for decades. Every single Friday, every single Good Friday, Pruitt would quote something he had heard from a lady who had said, you know what the best, the, 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 the greatest two words are in the English language? What? He arose. Pretty slick providence that Pruitt died on Good Friday, you know. And I really saw how death had lost its sting and death did not have the victory when I heard my mother-in-law watch my mother-in-law. She's one of those people where you think, I know everybody sins, but I'm not so sure she does, you know. (laughs) You've met a few people like that. I'm not one of them, but um, she is. And there she was lying over her dying husband's body who was going to die in just a few hours. Weeping and praising God and weeping and thanking God and weeping. Such a swirl of grief and gratitude. I could hardly believe it. I didn't get that in seminary. She took me to school. And then after we heard he had died, my wife was in her bedroom. They hearing them weep and cry and thank God and thank God and thank God and cry in hope, in hope of the resurrection. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, thank you that as Paul says to those Thessalonians, he means that we not grieve as others who have no hope. Thank you, Lord, that our grief is laced with gratitude and adoration and hope because of the resurrection of Christ. Amen.